Here's what I want to do. This is my outline for the morning. It's John 8, and, and it actually starts in chapter 7, verse 53, and we're going to go to verse 11. And um, I'm going to read the passage, and then I'm going to pray for us. And then I'm going to talk about the two reasons why this passage is famous. And then I'm going to um, conclude after that section um, with um, what the, what's going on in the passage. How does it help us? And how is it synced with, I mean, how, how is it the same message of the whole Bible really from beginning to end? So I know that's a lot, but um, the outline should be pretty easy to follow. All right. John chapter 7, verse 53 to 8-11. Here's how it is recorded. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple and the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, and they might have some charge, uh, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down, wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, pray that you would help us this morning to hear your truth um, even as we see it displayed, I hope, this morning, from the beginning to end of your word and how the gospel triumphs over the law and, Father, over humanity. And so give us a great picture of that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to begin by telling you the greatest anniversary present that I've ever given my wife, Leslie. On October the 1st of 2011, we had been married 16 years, in, well, in a day. So we're, uh, our anniversary is September 30th. This was October 1, so she had to wait one day for it. But what I did was, um, it was, uh, uh, Hagers went with us, figured we'd, we'd take a couple along with, with us. We went to Dallas. Um, we had a, a great meal, but that was only the appetizer to what the night really held. And so after the meal, we went to um, the SMU McFarlane Auditorium. And we, along with 1,500 people, piled into this auditorium to see the event that they were hosting. And the event that they were hosting, if you, and guys, if you want to write this down, it's a great time to do that. It was a debate between two New Testament scholars on the subject of textual criticism. You're welcome again, honey, for that. <laughs> that was an expensive dinner for me, by the way, uh, before we got there. 
And, and then the thing is, so here's the two scholars. One of them was named Dr. Dan Wallace. He's a uh, New Testament professor um, savant at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. He's the guy that writes all the uh, New Testament uh, textbooks, you know, they use in seminaries around the world, Dan Wallace wrote them. The, the second guy was a guy named Dr. Bart Ehrman, and he is a professor at the University of North Carolina. And they went on a kind of a three-location um, tour. Sorry, um, her. Uh, so um, anyway, so, so three-debate deal. Uh, this was the first of them. And, 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 and the reason, so do you think oh my gosh, this is the most boring thing I could ever imagine in my whole life. Um, and it, it wasn't. It, it was, and I'll tell you why they were having this debate. Because this thing called New Testament textual criticism for you know, a century or you know, more, um, not actually, it's only the 20th century this happened. Um, it, was a, it was a discipline of study or a, or, a, or a study of the church and even outside the church academia that seemed to be sheltered from or, or lived above, you know, the, the church. And so you, you might, if you sat in the church, you know, had rumblings of, you know, there were scholars that were debating things in the New Testament, but, you know, it didn't really matter to me that, you know, and, and you hope your pastor knew about it, but, you know, by and large, you know, that's just not a big deal to me. And, and for the 20th century, um, it, it probably wasn't a big deal until two things happened that brought this thing that was, that was up here in the, you know, the, the stratosphere of academia down into the middle and the heart of the church. And, and the two things were this, and there were other things, but the two big ones. The first was that Dan Brown published a novel, uh, The Da Vinci Code. Anybody read The Da Vinci Code or see Tom Hanks? But it was a great movie, great book, loved it. It's so fun. But he makes some statements in there. Now, again, uh, you know, sometimes we're always, always get confused. It was a novel, like fiction. But anyways, he makes some statements in there that really like upset a lot of folks. Like he said this in it. What we have as the Bible has evolved through the centuries through countless translations, revisions, and additions. History's never had a definitive version of the book. The, um, uh, he, and he says this is a work of fiction based on fact. He says the Bible's been translated so many times through the centuries that we cannot possibly have what the authors supposedly wrote. So he writes that, and it becomes kind of a bombshell for a minute. You know, I mean, people are responding. The church is responding. It seems like the church is on their heels. You know, so no, 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 that's not true. That's not true. Okay. Well, then Bart Ehrman, who is a incredibly winsome guy. He's a, he's a fantastic communicator. Um, his, his history is he went to Moody uh, Bible College and then went to Wheaton. And then from Wheaton, he went over to Princeton and got his PhD. He studied with a guy named Bruce Metzger, with, which Bruce Metzger is the, the, you know, the premier New Testament scholar um, when he was alive uh, out of the 20th century. But when he goes there, he ends up losing his faith, if you will, if it's something that can be lost. And he begins to write about textual criticism at a popular level. And his goal is that you would read that and you would begin to doubt for yourself the validity 
of the New Testament. In fact, when we went to this debate, he stands up on the stage and such a likable guy. I mean, I think I'd really like him if I met him, and if I didn't punch him. Um, but, but he's a smart guy, and so he stands up. And so there's 1,500 people at SMU. This is Dallas. Remember Dallas, the buckle of the Bible belt, all right? So, um, it, so he stands up, and he says this. He says, I'm, I'm really here to talk about one thing, and, you know, very seemingly humble. And he says, you know, I'm just here to say that all of your churches and what we believe about the Bible is that it, they're inerrant, you know, or without error, or trustworthy, you know, however you want to say it, to the original manuscripts. And he says, but here's the problem. We don't have the original manuscripts, not one of them. In fact, we don't even have a copy of the original manuscripts. In fact, we, we don't even have a copy of, the, of copies. In fact, it's worse than that. We don't have copies of the copies of the copies of the copies of the original manuscripts. So since we have that, how in the world can we know what, what the New Testament says? So that's how he begins. Well, you can just hear the air sucked out of the room. You know, I mean, you know, Leslie's squeezing my knees. She's like, it's her anniversary. Uh, and you ru- you're ruining the Bible. And, and um, uh, but Dan Wallace hadn't talked yet. You know, I mean, so Dan Wallace is this great New Testament scholar. And I mean, you know, these guys, they know what each other's going to say. But um, so he, I'm going to leave that hanging in the air for just a second. I want to tell you, a few reasons why I'm even talking about this this morning. And then hopefully help, help you understand. Uh, so, so one of the reasons is I want you as believers. So believers here at Bethel Bible Church. I want you to be people who study God's word. B- believers who study God's word. Um, and, and so listen, I realize you've got jobs, you've got lives, you've got kids and PTAs and all those things. You can't spend all your days and all of your day studying God's Word. But, but I want us to be Bible studiers. I mean, if, if it's all you get is here on a Sunday morning, then it's okay, but you, there's so much more. And so you could take some of your Christmas money and you could buy a, a, a commentary, you know, like the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It's a one-volume, two-volume commentary on the whole Bible. It's great. You know, or a Bible dictionary. You say, oh, I don't want a Bible dictionary. You don't know that you don't want one. They're awesome. There's a Holman or Zondervan, you know, I mean, you get them at Lifeway. They're a great investment to have. So I want you to be people who study the Bible. The, all, the other thing is, I don't want you to be uninformed. I mean, I don't want somebody to come along and say to you, well, hey, listen, you know you can't really trust that Bible, and you know you can't really trust your church or your pastor because there's secrets they've been keeping from you. You say, well, I don't, I don't know any secrets. I say, oh, yeah, well, turn over to John chapter 7, verse 53. You see those brackets around it? And then you read the footnote at the bottom, and it says, well, this doesn't appear in the early manuscripts. They've been lying to you. That's not really supposed to be in the Bible. You say, well, nobody's ever told me that. I didn't, I mean, I've seen that footnote, but I don't, I mean, I didn't know what that meant, and now somebody's seeking to undermine every, everything I, I seem to believe in my church is keeping secrets. And, and I just want you to hear, there's not anything hiding. It's, it's absolutely in plain sight. But I do want you to understand what that means. The, the passage, if you notice, you, maybe you look just now. You say, oh, I did okay. So now you looked at the footnote and you see there's brackets around it. And, um, and so what's going on with that? 
Well, I said the passage was famous for two reasons. One of the reasons is it's famous because it is an incredibly dramatic display of grace, uh, the grace of God in the Bible. It is an absolutely beautiful picture of the grace of God uh, right here in the middle of John. The other reason it's famous is because it is very likely John did not write the story. It's, it's, in fact, it's almost certain that this wasn't a part of the original gospel of, God, of John. So I'll tell you how the argument goes. Um, well, first of all, here, here what a couple of people say. So Don Carson, you might see him as D.A. Carson, New Testament guy at Trinity, brilliant, brilliant mind. He says this. He says, despite the best efforts to prove that this narrative was originally a part of John's gospel, the evidence is against it. The, the modern English versions are right to rule it off and bracket it off um, in the text to relegate it to, or relegate it to a footnote. Bruce Metzger, he's amazing man in love of the Lord. He said the evidence for this being a non-Johannine origin, meaning it wasn't from John, um, uh, of, the, of the story of the adulteress, it, it's overwhelming that it wasn't him. Leon Morris, another scholar from the last century, uh, the textual evidence makes it impossible to hold that this section is an authentic part of John's gospel. And it goes on and on, and most scholars um, agree with that. And, and here are some of the reasons why it probably isn't a part of John's original gospel. Um, the evidence goes something like this. The story is missing from all of the Greek manuscripts of John before the 5th century. Secondly, all the earliest church fathers omit this passage in commenting on John's uh, uh, gospel directly. They go from 752 to 812. Thirdly, the, the text flows, the, the way the text flows, if you pull this out, it goes from 752 to 812, that you, you see, oh, that's how the flow of the text goes. Another argument, no Eastern church father cites the passage before the 10th century when dealing with the gospel. When the story starts to appear in the manuscript of John, it actually appears in three different places in John's gospel. Sometimes it's earlier in chapter 7, sometimes it's after uh, chapter 21, and in fact, even in uh, one manuscript you find, it shows up in Luke chapter 21. It's a kind of the story that it looked like was looking for a home in the transmission of the text. The last reason, in style and in vocabulary, it's more unlike the rest of John's gospel than the other paragraphs and stories in the gospel. And there's a few things that point to it. For instance, this story talks about scribes, and John never any other place talks about scribes. Luke's the one, Mark, Matthew, they talk about scribes. Um, and so there's some believe that probably fits over there. So you, you are sitting there, and one of two things, you're like, I, I know all this is fine, it doesn't matter to me, or you're sitting here and you're sufficiently freaked out, okay? So um, let me see if I can address that for a minute. How certain are we that we know what the original text of the New Testament says? How, how certain can we be? So if Bart Ehrman's right, we only have copies of copies of copies of copies, how certain can we be? Well, let me say um, a few things about that. Let's see if I can, I can walk you through some logical things. The original manuscripts 
disappeared within about 100 years after they were written. The, the truth is, all, all ancient documents in their original form have disappeared. The reasons, probably because they, they wore out, um, they were used extensively uh, for being copied, um, and I also think there's probably a providential reason. I think if we still had an original manuscript of the New Testament, something John wrote, you know what we'd do with it? We would um, take it, we'd put it in a glass jar, we'd enshrine it, and then we'd worship it, knowing who we are as human beings. Or we'd say, well, that, that thing means more than everything else does because we got the copy of it, okay, the, the original. All right, so, so we don't have any originals. Now, um, how about the, the transmission of these uh, uh, copies? Um, so let, let's say it uh, th this way. Um, here's how that it used to work. So John writes his gospel. And then he sends it to the church. And, and immediately what the church does is because this is, this is how they operated in the ancient world is they would make a copy of it. They would, they would write a copy of it because they wanted to keep it and then they would pass it on. So they write a copy of it. And they had people who their job was to do this. They were, they were scribes. They were um, um, people in the church that were set apart. Their life calling was the preservation and transmission of God's word. And they took this so seriously. And so they would copy it or... Um, it might go like this. They would um, put one man up in front of um, a bunch of scribes. And he would read it as you would write it down. And so um, then what would happen is they would take these scribes that had made their copies and they would say, okay, to you scribes, you're going to go to this part of the world. And to these uh, scribes, y'all are going to go to that part of the world. And in and, and, and your, your group, you're going to go down here to the south. And in your group, you're going to go, you know, you're going to go over there to the east. So they would take these copies and then they would send them out. And when they got out there, they would do much of the same thing. So this group, they'd take it to a group and then they would do the copies and then they would send out and they would send out and, and all this. And that's how the, the translations uh, and the copies of the originals spread to the church around the world, all right? So, here's what we have discovered. There are over 5,600 manuscripts that we've discovered throughout the, the centuries. Um, from more than 250 places in the world... Uh, Dan Wallace has this Institute uh, for New Testament um, study and research, and, and they've found 70 manuscripts in just the last nine years. He believes there's probably at least 1,000 more left to be found, and they're all up in the uh, Soviet Union area. Also, these are, and those were Greek manuscripts I'm talking about, in the Greek, in the original language. We also have manuscripts in Latin, and we have over 10,000 of those manuscripts. And on top of the Latin manuscripts, we have from other languages, Coptic and Syrian and, and Slavonic, and, and there's another 10 or 15,000 manuscripts from those languages. So overall, we have over 25,000 manuscripts 
from 250 different places in the world, all before the time of the printing press. Dan Wallace says, you know what? It's an embarrassment of riches that we have. Not only that, let me say this. If all those manuscripts suddenly went away, we could reproduce the entire New Testament from simply the writings of the church fathers, the sermons and the commentaries and the comments that they would write about theology because they quoted scripture in it. And so you could go to the early church fathers. We have over a million quotes from the New Testament and you could reproduce the entire New Testament just from what the church fathers wrote. Compare this with other ancient literature for a minute. When you talk about the history of Rome, okay, um, you have uh, a handful of uh, historians. You have Livy, you have Tacitus, you have Suetonius, you have Herodotus, um, and you have 24 copies of Livy, uh, three copies of Tacitus, the latest is the ninth century, Livy's fourth century. Suetonius doesn't show up until the eighth century, and we found there was a whole cache of those found. Um, all in all, if you take all the, the, the ancient literature and the copies of the copies of the copies of the Roman world, you have less than 400 copies combined. And most of those are geographically from very similar places. And everything that we know about Roman history and literature comes from that. Now, our earliest copies come from within decades of the New Testament as opposed to centuries. And when you compare the New Testament to the average Greek or Latin author, um, so you have, uh, so let's say this, you took everything you knew about Rome and you put it in a stack, it would come to about four feet high. Everything we know about Rome. In fact, it'd fit in the trunk of a Volkswagen. You take all the manuscripts that we've found um, that are um, the New Testament manuscripts and you stacked those, go almost a mile high. And that doesn't even include the quotes from the patristic fathers. And so you talk about, somebody will say, well, yeah, but there's all these variants. I mean, you know, the, uh, you, you, you can't know what, what one thing said or another thing said and that's just how it goes. This group went that direction, this group went that direction, that group went this direction, that group went that direction. And so you get a copy, you find a copy that's nine or 10 or 12 generations down the line over here, and then you find a, a copy that's 10 or 15 or 20 generations down the line over here, and you know what you do? You set those beside each other, and you know what you discover when you do that? They're virtually identical. Wait a minute, different parts of the world, sometimes from different languages, they're virtually identical. Here's where the difference might be. You say, oh, there's all these variants. Well, 99% of them can be explained this way. These people use the indefinite article and they said a book, and this group used the definite article and said the book. Or this group said the Lord Jesus, and this group said the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you bring in this one from the 8th century, and you set that beside, and you go, oh, okay, these two agree, and that one's different. It's likely this. And so you say, 
Do we know what the original manuscript said? We absolutely can get down to what the original manuscripts say when you compare all the wealth of resources we have about New Testament manuscripts. It, it is absolutely the most reliable ancient study there is, and, and God had superintended all of it. Okay. So you get to a passage um, like this, and it shows up, and you think, well, what, what do you do with it? it? It showed up late. Well, here are what most scholars have to say about um, this, and I, I tend to agree. And that is that, listen, you get to the end of John. John will say in chapter 20, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, all of which are not written down in this book. Then you get to 21, and he says, there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So Jesus did a whole bunch of stuff that's not written down. Thirdly, um, most take this to say, okay, he, this has all the marks of authenticity. It has all the marks of being a true Jesus story. It somehow got preserved in the church, but outside of the canon, outside of the New Testament. And so they began to look for a home for this story. So very likely John did not write it. It is very likely this is a true story of Jesus' ministry. So... Now, what do you do? So, so, what do you do with it in the church as a pastor and on, on a Sunday morning? Well, we'll take our cue from John Calvin, if you'll allow me a John Calvin quote this morning. It's plain enough that this passage was unknown anciently to the Greek churches, and some conjecture that has been brought from some other place and inserted here. But as it has always been received by the churches, it is found in many old, other old Greek manuscripts and contains nothing unworthy of apostolic spirit, and there is no reason why we should refuse to apply it to our advantage. So look, I, we know it's not, it hadn't been there. We don't know exactly, exactly the origin of it, but, but we see it and we hear it, and, it's, and it accords with everything else that Scripture has to say, and it deserves a home. So it has found its home here in John. And so with that, what I want to do is I want to show you how this story actually is a great picture of everything else that the Bible has to say. And I'm going to do that in the next 10 minutes. So here, here's how it goes. So in the story, what you see is a contrast, okay? And here's the contrast. You have a legal righteousness and you have a gospel righteousness, and righteousness means, how is a person made right? By what standard are they going to be judged on? And if you're judged by that standard, how are you right? And, and, the, and the woman, she is caught in this adultery. So she is condemned by the law. This is the legal righteousness. The legal righteousness was on the side of the crowd. So she'd been caught in the act, verse 4 says. And that's what the law does, by the way. It catches you in the act. You read it, you're convicted. Paul says it's holy and it's righteous and it's good and it's from God. And it diagnoses you. It, it reveals about you you're worse than you ever imagined you were. But it offers no remedy. 
can't heal you. It's the doctor that administers the, uh, the diagnosis but has no treatment for you. That's the law. It's legal righteousness. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees, what you'll see is they're also going to be caught in the act here. They're going to find themselves condemned by the law on their own. So the legal righteousness they saw, they wanted to wield that against the woman. They they'd want to use it to trap Jesus. It's the very righteousness that they're going to be condemned by. And the whole story is less about this trial of a woman. And you know what it is? It is a picture of a trial of Jesus before the trial and the crucifixion. They've brought a woman. They, they've done this. And, and in verse uh, 6, you find they did this to test him. The word means to trap him. They were laying a snare for him because they wanted to accuse him. You say, well, what did they want to accuse him of? Well, here's what they wanted to accuse him of. They wanted to put him in a situation where he's caught by the horns of dilemma. So on the one hand, he either upholds the law of God and says, you know what, the law of God is holy and it's righteous and it's true. And this woman, she's committed adultery and the law says you're supposed to do this if you commit adultery. So I guess that she ought to be stoned to death. And then they could go, see, this is your Messiah. No compassion, no love. You come to the Messiah, he'll condemn you. Or the other one that says, well, I know, I mean, I know she was caught, and, but, but I'm a man of compassion and love, and I came to show God's love, and so we'll set the law aside for the sake of God's love. And so either way, he either tramples on the morality and the holiness of the law, or he's a God of no, he's, he's one who claims, uh, his claims mean nothing because there's no compassion, there's no love. You see the dilemma. So they bring her into the presence. They cite Moses, which is what they always do. Moses is their guide. It's like the trump card, you know. And um, it, it's interesting. So then he, he hears them, and he doesn't respond. And he, and he stoops down, and he begins to write in the sand. Everybody goes, well, what did, what did he write in the sand? Well, we don't know. It doesn't tell us. Just, that's not important to the story. There's, in fact, you could publish a whole book on all the different theories of what it is that Jesus was doing. I, Talks about the, does it with his finger. Well, I think probably the most plausible is you go back to Exodus and you find that Moses brought the law that was written on the tablets by the finger of God. And maybe Jesus is saying to those guys, you want to bring up Moses? I'm the one that wrote it. So he stands up and he says, hey, listen. Um, you, you cite the law, you cite Leviticus 20, uh, Deuteronomy 22, the penalty for adultery is death for both the man and the woman. He doesn't ever bring it up, but the question hangs in the air, where's the man? Which also means, if he's not there, this is likely a setup. It's likely a plant. It's likely a conspiracy. And so he'll say, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, that means, that I think, in the context, a couple of things. One, I think Jesus is highlighting the fact that you didn't bring the man, the fact that you only brought the woman, the, the fact that this whole thing is a kangaroo court and a setup from the very beginning 
means that you're actually guilty of partiality. You're actually guilty of taking the law and trying to use it to manipulate a situation which makes you guilty, which makes you not without sin. But I think the other thing he means is he who has no sin cast the first stone. Now, this is not the political use of the law is he's, that he's talking about. You, you, I mean, this, this would not work for our society, and it's not meant to be applied in that way. We're, we say, well, nobody ever gets in trouble because nobody's, you know, without sin to be able to bring a, a, a charge against somebody. That, that's not what that means. But really, the way that Jesus is saying it in verse 7, it's not a request. It's not a suggestion. You know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, I command you. I care so much about God's law that judgment must be executed. But here's the condition, and it's the single condition. It has to be one who has no sin. So I command you, if you're without sin, to cast the first stone. They feel the weight of it because they realize, because the law says, well, first you have to be the eyewitness, and there has to be more than one. Not only that, you have to be able to give an exact account of what happened and then somebody else is cross-examined and everything has to line up. If not, you're in trouble and if you cast a stone you, you, and if you bring the charge, you're the first one to cast a stone and for some reason later it finds out you're, you're consp- uh, consp- conspired against it, you'll be put to death. And so every one of them feels the weight of what it is that Jesus said in the oldest first, right? And they drop the stones and they walk away and you're left with only Jesus and the woman, which in the context you realize, oh yeah, the one who has no sin is the one who is there and has the right to execute judgment based upon the legal righteousness. You see this? And then here's the controversy. I love this. It's why we love this story. Look at verse 10 and 11. Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. See, under the Mosaic law, You're either guilty and condemned or not guilty and not condemned. Do you know what she is? She's guilty, but she's not condemned. I mean, Jesus says, listen, I I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. We both know you're guilty of this. But go and sin no more. This is a sin. But I don't condemn you. Now, wait a minute. He either should say, you're guilty and you're condemned, or you're not guilty and you're not condemned. There is no category for you're guilty, but you're not condemned. Every other religion, you're guilty, you're condemned. You're not guilty, you're not condemned. That's how it goes. But the law, see, the, 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 the legal righteousness of the law, the holy law of God, it comes, like I said, it's, it's, it's one that pronounces the disease of sin. It exposes the sin in you, but it provides no remedy The law can only condemn you. The law is like Nathan that goes to 
to David and goes, you're the man. And it pronounces you guilty by death. And the gospel comes along to the graveside like Jesus does to Lazarus and says, Lazarus, come forth. And the gospel brings you to life. So how, how can Jesus not condemn her if she is guilty? Well, this is where we hear the rest of the New Testament, and I'm going to argue for two minutes the rest of the Bible. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. No one's righteous, no, not one. Not a single one of us is righteous. No one seeks God. No one understands Him. Um, we've all turned aside. We've all become worthless. That's the judgment. That's what the law has declared about us. And it's right. And we know it. And so what is our hope to be made right with God? Here's what he says. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as the propitiation or as the sacrifice or as the one to die your death by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine patience, his forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be, and here it is, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, John's gospel is going to lead us. I hate to spoil the ending of John's gospel for you. But it's going to lead us to where Jesus will be arrested. He will be accused. He will be tried. He will be condemned. He will be nailed to a cross. He will die a very real death and lay in a grave for three days. And you know what John's telling us? It's your death that he died. It's your conviction that he absorbed. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin, he became sin. Your sin, my sin. So that we might become, you know what the word is? The righteousness of God. And because of that, be made right with God. In Romans 8, 1, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. In Romans 4, 5, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted righteousness God is saying to the woman Jesus says to the woman you're guilty but I don't condemn you I'll take your condemnation the death you deserve here because of the legal righteousness of the law I'm going to take I'm going to take on myself and that's the gospel righteousness Jesus saying I'm going to die your death so that you can live my life. So that you can know reconciliation with the Father. The law is good and right and holy, and it tells you 
but you can't pay it. I'll pay it for you. You know, it's interesting. Um, that's the story of the New Testament. It's the story of this gospel, of this story. It finds a home. It finds a rightful home in John's gospel, whether John wrote it or not. Because it's the story not only of the New Testament, it's the story of the Old Testament. It's the oldest story that we have told in the Bible. And I'll tell you real quickly, we're out of time, but Job is the earliest book, the, 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 the oldest book we have in all the Bible, Job. And we all know Job because Job's this righteous man. That's what the Bible declares about him. God's, God says, look at Job, he's righteous. He's a good righteous man as far as righteousness goes. He, he's, he's blameless. He, he's without fault. And, and we think, well, Job's all about suffering. And it's all about suffering. It's all about the suffering of Job. And Job suffers, and Satan's allowed to come and have his way with Job up to a certain point and bring affliction and take all his blessings away because Satan says, listen, he only loves you because you bless him, and if you take away those, he'll curse you. And Job says, no, he won't. But here's how the story goes. Job gets all this stuff taken away. He's suffering. It's, it's just terrible. It's, it's terrible. Some of you have lived through these kinds of things. And then Job, to make it worse, Job has these friends and, and a wife. But he has these friends that come and they say, Job, look, here's the deal. You're suffering because, because you've done something wrong. Come on, you can tell us. Just tell us what it is you did wrong. Get it off your chest and maybe the suffering will stop. Because that's how God works. It's karma. You do something bad, bad stuff happens to you. And this is how Job doesn't curse God. He refuses to believe that. He says, look, I, my conscience is clean. The things you're saying, I mean, look, I, I'm a man. I'm a frail human man made of dust. I'll go to dust. But I'm blameless here. I haven't done anything. That whatever's happening here, it's not because of something I've done. And so he hangs on, he hangs on to the very end till he can't hang on anymore. But here is what happens, and then God shows up, and he, and, he, and he reveals to him who he is and all of his power. And here's the story of Job behind the story of the suffering. It is this, that Job will come to the conclusion four times in Job's uh, account, there are these advocate passages, and the advocate passage says this. Job comes to the realization that though I'm righteous, though I'm blameless, Though by every respect I'm a good man and I love God, that righteousness, my human righteousness, is not enough. I cannot stand before the almighty, powerful, sovereign, supreme creator of the universe all on my own. And if ever I stand before him and if ever I have a hearing before him, someone has to mediate that for me. Someone has to stand in the gap for me. And Job will say four times, I need a mediator, I need an advocate, and I don't even know if one exists. But if there is, someone has to stand there who is, who is man, who has flesh, who can touch me, and is also God, and knows his uh, uh, audience and the heavenlies, and he can touch both of us and bridge this gap because my righteousness isn't enough. I need the holiness and righteousness of another. the story of Job and the story of every book of every, of every page of the entire Bible. And it's the story of the woman caught in adultery. Because the law catches all of us. We're all condemned, but Jesus says to you, if you believe in me, 
I don't condemn you. I love you. Bring you in. I'm your righteousness. And go sin no more. Notice the order. It's not go sin no more, and then I'll make you righteous. I won't condemn you. It's because I've saved you, because I haven't condemned you, because I've given you my righteousness. Now go live that out. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your word from beginning to end. And I thank you as we look at this story, we see that it actually...